0: You're welcome for that. For those of you who are not nerds and have never seen that and have no clue what that was, that was Avengers in, uh, Endgame. It was the cap mo- Capstone movie of uh, about 10 years' worth of movies for Marvel, a bunch of superhero movies. And it all ended, actually, not just with that movie, but with two movies because it was so epic, they had to do it in two movies. And they did Avengers Infinity War and then Avengers Endgame. And in Infinity War... It didn't end on a good note. Sorry to spoil it, but I figured if you hadn't seen it by this point, you're too late. And Avengers Infinity War ends on a down note. There's the heroes lost. Several heroes actually died. They were snapped away by the villain Thanos. And it ends in a hopeless tone. And so with Endgame coming up, when you're going to see that movie, you're like, okay, something's gonna have to happen. Something's gonna have to change. Something's in the works. We, we know that they're not going to end 10 years worth of movies with the heroes losing. It just doesn't work that way. So the whole movie, there's this kind of build up, this anticipation. Hey, something's coming. Something's going to happen. Something has to happen. The heroes just can't lose until they get into this final battle, which, if I believe correctly, is like an hour of the three-hour movie. It's this epic battle. The heroes are getting beat. It seems hopeless, but you know it's not going to end like that. And then here comes this scene here. And Captain America hears in his ear, on your left, a call back to one of the old movies, and then all the heroes step forth. And in the theater, I was watching it in, everyone went nuts when Black Panther stepped through the portal. And it was this epic scene, and of course the heroes didn't lose, they won. It was a good thing, again, sorry for spoiling it. But why do I tell you that? Because I feel like 2020 kind of feels like that. It feels hopeless, it feels chaotic, it's just been an insane Year, right? It, you keep asking the question, which me and Eric joked about this before, like, okay, surely nothing else can happen, right? And then, like, you know, you go through COVID, and then the next thing is like, oh, nothing else can happen, and like, oh, hurricanes pop out of nowhere. Like, literally, while I'm as I was walking up here, I got a notification from, from the news. It's like a Supreme Court justice died. So, there you go, you heard it here first. So, it's like, what else could go wrong in this year? There's all this chaos, there's all this uncertainty. But the reason why I tell you that story and show you that clip. It's because I have a feeling, I have a sense, a belief that God is doing something new. That there is a new thing that God is doing. I genuinely believe that. Now, if you're like me and you hear someone say that, you say, oh, I have a feeling, I have a sense, then you immediately kind of get nervous, red flags go up, because you know what I know. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things, that you can't trust your feelings, and you certainly can't trust say, oh, well, I feel like God is doing X, Y, and Z, and say, oh, he's doing this. So you get a little nervous when I say that, and rightfully so. And so what we're going to do tonight is I want to build a strong biblical foundation to why we can make that claim, why we can say that in this season, in this context, God is doing a new thing. And so we want to build a strong biblical foundation and then then at the end tether that claim to that foundation. And so we're going to walk through this, we've got to build this foundation, but at the end I promise I'm going to make it, uh, bring it down to a personal level and make it uh, where you can really kind of take it down on an individual level. So the, the phrase, like Eric said, that I believe God is doing a new thing, that comes from the verses in Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 20. And it says this, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? So, first, to, to build this foundation, we have to say, okay, who's saying this? Who are they saying to? And what is the point in it? What, what's the message they're trying to get across? Well, the who is Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, a messenger of God, and he says this to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, when he says this, are in a time of exile. They've been taken captive from an invading nation. And so we have to understand who the people of God are. To understand the original intent, to understand the the foundation here, we have to understand, okay, who are the Israelites? The Israelites are God's chosen people. They're they're God's chosen people. They're his covenant people. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis with a man named Abraham. Some of you probably know him. Father Abraham had many sons, that guy. And God enters into a covenant relationship with him. Now, the word covenant, it's a churchy word. What does that mean? It's like a contract. It's like a binding legal agreement, but it's actually much deeper than that. It's a a committing of people to one another. It's kind of like making... Family out of non family. So think in our terms in our day, marriage, right? It's a binding legal agreement. It's a contract. But if I stop there, my wife would be mad at me. Sarah wouldn't be happy. Because it's more than just a contract. It's a committing of people to one another. It's me saying, Hey, you're mine and I am yours. It's it's entering into a covenant relationship with one another. And so God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham and he promises and says, Hey, I'm gonna make you the father of a nation. You're going to have many descendants. I'm going to give you this particular land and this particular place, and I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And through you, through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And you think, oh, that's great. And you think, okay, happily ever after, right? Wrong. Fast forward a few years, a few hundred years, and the Israelites, God's chosen people, the people of Abraham, his descendants, they're in captivity in Egypt. They're enslaved there, they're oppressed, they're forced to do back-breaking labor. And it gets so bad to one point where the Pharaoh, he got scared that the people would be too many and they'd, uh, there'd be an uprising, and so he orders a decree to have baby boys thrown into the Nile, murdered. That's how bad it got. But it says that God heard the cries of his people. He heard them groaning in their slavery. And what he does is so incredible. It's it's really cool how he does it. He raises up a man named Moses who was an Israelite boy, a baby boy. But instead of being thrown into the Nile, he was set there in a basket to save him. So he was saved by the Nile. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him, raises him as her son. So he's raised in the household of Pharaoh on his dime. And then one day when he grows up, God calls him back and he goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let my people go. And if you've seen the prince of Egypt or been in church, you probably know. Pharaoh says no. And he keeps going. God eventually sends these different plagues. Pharaoh's heart keeps being hardened until finally at the end there's a, a plague, the death of the firstborn son. And all these plagues happen in Egypt, but they don't happen to any of the Israelite people. And finally Pharaoh says, okay, go. And so Moses gathers his people and they leave Egypt. In fact, Egyptians actually gave them gold and jewels as they left. And so he uh, leads this mass exodus from Egypt. But Pharaoh changes his mind, chases after him with his army. But you know the story. Moses and the Israelites get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea, What y'all just saying, makes a highway through the sea for them. They march all through, and then the uh, Egyptians follow them, and it crashes on them. The Israelites escape. They're saved. They're brought out from Egypt. And it gets even better. God actually takes him to Mount Sinai. And he decides to deepen this covenant with his people. He, he takes Moses up there. And he's, instead of just being some people, some descendants, some nation, he said, you are my people. And I am your God. See, that's the, the wording there, again, of a marriage. And, and he's etching it into the terms of the marriage onto some stone tablets. And again, you think, oh, happily ever after. God just rescued them in a mighty way, an incredible way. And it's proven that no one can fight him. No one can go against this God. And so they're going to be safe. He's proven his love for them happily ever after. Wrong. Because while he's etching into the commandments, the terms of his covenant relationship, the people of Israel are at the bottom of the mountain and they forged a golden calf. Probably the gold from the spoils they got from the Egyptians when God rescued them. And they've worshipped that golden calf as the God who saved them. It's just heartbreaking. If you read just the narrative of it, you're just blown away. Like, why would you do that? It makes no sense. And the the imagery, just think about it this way. It's like a a man waiting at at the end of the aisle for his bride to come down. So they can finally enter into this marriage relationship. And it gets time. And it gets past time. And she never shows. And then what he finds out later on is not only did she not show, but she was in bed with someone else. It's adultery, it's cheating on him. That's the imagery that Scripture is going to describe what Israel had done to God. They were unfaithful to him. And you read it and you're like, oh, he's done with them, surely. But he's not. He's so merciful to them. He continues into this covenant relationship with them, anyways. And you think, okay, surely after this grace surely after he's been so kind to them not only did he save them but now he's forgiven them that happily ever after wrong they continue in this unfaithfulness they continue to worship these other gods they continue to groan and complain they even make statements like you know we would be better off in egypt it's like really better in egypt where you were enslaved where they were murdering your children but they continue in their unfaithfulness and you grow weary as you read the scriptures You're like, oh my gosh, God, how long are you going to put up with this? But it continues, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, and eventually leads them to that promised land that he had for them, the land of Canaan. And says, hey, there are people there, but you're going to go in, and you're going to conquer them. You're going to be victorious. This is going to be your land. And so they send spies out. Spies come back. Two of them say, yeah, this is incredible. Land flowing with milk and honey. It's great. But the rest of the spies say, yeah, but there are these giants there. We can't can't destroy them. We can't beat them. They're going to crush us. God, why would you even bring us here just to die in this land? We would have been better off in Egypt. And so here you have the Israelites where God is saying, hey, step into this new land. Step into the new land that is promised of old. But their fear and their, their anxiety to go in keeps them from entering in. And you're like, okay, surely God's done. But no, he extends mercy. They wander in the wilderness for another 40 years, and then they come back. He brings them back into the promised land, back into Canaan. They go into the land. They conquer just as God said they would. And Okay, okay they're finally in the promised land. This is it. This is where the Bible ends. Is. Is, let's just write it off happily ever after. But no, they continue in their unfaithfulness. They're unfaithful. They go after the gods of the peoples of, the other, of that land. But then God extends grace to them. They cry out to him. He raises a judge to save them. And this pattern repeats over and over and over again. And I know I'm belaboring this point, but that's how it feels when you read Scripture. Then they enter into this time period where they say, hey, God, give us a king, just like all the other nations. He says, you don't need a king. Gonna, he's going to oppress you. He's going to take advantage of you. You don't need that. And they said, no, 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 give us a king. So he gives them a king. It starts a long line of wicked kings. And the people follow in the king's wickedness. They continue to harden their hearts. They continue to be unfaithful to the Lord. He actually sends prophets like Isaiah to be messengers saying, hey, turn from your sins. Stop. God's wrath will come. There will be judgment. There will be punishment for your wickedness. Repent and he'll have mercy on you. Repent, repent, repent. But they harden their hearts. And it continues over and over and over again. And you keep wondering, God, how long will you have mercy on them? And it actually gets so bad to the point where Scripture says that they were worse than the nations around them. And it got so bad that they actually got to the point where they were sacrificing children. So God saved them from Egypt where they were murdering their children. And then here we are, fast-forwarding several years later, and they're killing their own children themselves. And God says, okay, that's enough. And then destruction comes. These invading nations come. They bring destruction upon The people of Israel, and you're like, okay, this is it. This is where God writes them off, but he doesn't destroy them completely. He actually preserves a remnant, takes them into exile, and that's where the Israelites are, and you're just kind of waiting, okay, surely God's done, but he's not done. See, the whole first part of Isaiah, the whole first part is is Isaiah saying, hey, repent, repent, judgment's coming, please repent, and they just ignored him, but there's a second half with a different message, There's a second half. It doesn't end with that. In the second half, it's one of hope. And that's where we just read in Isaiah chapter 43. God says he's going to preserve a remnant of them. In verse 1, you'll see it on the screen. In verse 1, he talks about, hey, I formed you. I created you. He says, I love you. Fear not, I have redeemed you. You are precious in my eyes. And there's nothing special about the people of Israel on paper. In fact, it says in the verses, if you read them, about uh, Egypt's better. All these other nations on paper are better than Israel. But God says, no, 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 I've chosen you. You are precious to me. You're precious in my eyes. Uh, I will make a sea, I, or in the sea, I'll make a path in mighty waters. And then it gets to the verses that we read. Remember the former, not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It's a message of hope because you're in exile right now, but this is not the end of your story. I am bringing you out of exi- exile. There will be a second exodus. I'm calling you out. This is not the end of the line for you because I have great mercy on you because I love you so dearly. That's, that's the message here. But it actually points to a much bigger picture than that. It actually points to a much bigger picture. You see, we, mankind, are Israel. We have been unfaithful. We have rebelled against our creator. We have forsaken the one who loves us deeply, and we've bought into the cheap imitations of the real thing. We are enslaved by our sins. We are in exile because of our sins. But that's not the end of our story, because our God is so merciful. He loves us so much that he did not write us off. He created us, and though there's nothing special in and of us, just because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we are precious in his eyes. And so the new thing that God was doing and drawing out the people and drawing them out of exile was actually pointing uh, to us. He's preserving the people of Israel so he can redeem all of mankind through his Son Jesus, who was born of the Israelite people, fully God, fully man, and he lives a perfect life that we could not live, and then he goes to the cross to die death that he did not deserve." In Romans 5: it says, "But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that while we were still broken, while we were in exile, Christ died for us so that we can be redeemed. And through his life, death, and resurrection, when we confess him as Lord and we believe in who he is and what God did, how he raised him from the dead, then we can be saved. And what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation in Christ. So the new thing that God was doing was Jesus. He was bringing Jesus. He was making a way for Jesus so that Through him, we could be new. That the old us, the old sin and guilt and shame that that was condemned to suffer the wrath of God, would be made new, be given new life through Jesus. He makes a way in the wilderness. Behold, he is doing a new thing. And then in Romans 21, see, it doesn't just stop there. There's actually the end of the story. We know what's coming. In Romans 21, verses 1 through 5, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The happily ever after is coming. There's going to be a day where Christ comes and he brings the new heaven, the new earth. He wipes away all of our tears and death will be no more. He's making all things new. Do you not see it? And so if that's the, the context, that's the biblical foundation, how then can we make the claim and say, okay, how is God doing a new thing today? right now in our season in this context in the church how can we say god is doing a new thing well for one this is a new season of life this is a new chapter in the history of the world in our context in our culture there's a global pandemic the coronavirus is a thing and i know for i don't care where you stand whether you're like oh this is the plague versus oh this doesn't even exist it is an objective truth that the coronavirus has changed the world. The world is not as it once was. It's a new season, a new chapter, and then you throw in there the tensions. You have racial tensions. You have political tensions. You throw in those tensions of our culture, and then you mix it all in there that we are in a post-Christian culture, where at one point everyone went to church. Everyone would have said, "Oh, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Let me check this box." It's a popular thing. It's an okay thing now, many of you already feel that that's not the case anymore. Whether it be in your classrooms and your professor says things and it makes you feel uncomfortable or maybe even in friend groups or on social media, you can tell that there's a tension where you don't feel like you can speak up and say what you believe. You're scared you're going to be ostracized for it or maybe even worse than that, it might hurt your chances in class or might hurt your chance of getting a job. So you feel this tension already. This is a new season, a new chapter. But then with that, in the same breath, though this is a new season, God is still sovereign and in power over it. Just like Eric said, God is still seated on the throne. Just like when the Israelites were in exile, it wasn't like God was scrambling like, oh no, I didn't see this coming. Oh no, I don't know what to do here. He is still seated and in authority on the throne over that moment. it's the same thing in 2020. He's not surprised by 2020. He's not surprised by our context or our culture. He is not only is he not surprised, he is in power and authority over it. But not only is he just sovereign over it, he's working in it. Just like when the people were in exile, he used it as a time to refine his people. See, that's what God does. In difficult times, we see throughout scripture that God uses it as a refining fire to make us look more like him. He uses difficult times, difficult circumstances to strengthen our faith, to give us perseverance, to give us endurance. He uses difficult circumstances to prepare us for what is to come. When David struck Goliath, do you think that's the first time he ever used a sling? No. He killed the lion, he killed the bear before that. Those times as a shepherd boy, God was preparing him for that moment. And then when he was wandering and running from King Saul, he had his army around him, these people, his mighty men, that he learned how to lead and guide, learned military strategy, and then he became king. God was preparing him in the difficult seasons. See, God is sovereign over everything, and he's working it for his glory and our good. That is the truth about it. God has the tendency to use circumstances to mobilize his church for his glory. The, the early church, they, they faced extreme persecution, I mean, their, their businesses were boycotted. They weren't able to make a living. But beyond that, they were being murdered for their faith. And you would think that you would see Christianity take a hit, that it would decrease, that maybe even get snuffed out. But what you find is that it didn't just, just not take a hit, that it thrived. That it thrived under the persecution because God used it for his glory and for his good. He used that time, that context to mobilize his church. And I believe that he's doing the same thing now. I believe that even in the chaos, that God has got something on the rise, and he's doing a new thing, he's working for his good, working for his glory. A new thing is coming. See, will it be easy? I don't know, but probably not. If you look back to the Israelites when they're standing at the foot of the promised land, God calls them to step into it, but they don't. But then, when they eventually stepped into it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like they just walked in. They had to conquer. They had to. They had to fight. It wasn't an easy task. Look at Jesus, the ultimate new thing. When he stepped on the scene, it wasn't an easy life. He he was persecuted and ultimately murdered on the cross. Same as his early or the early disciples. They were all or many of them were martyrs for the faith. It wasn't easy. But will it be good? Absolutely. God is working for his good and for are working for his glory and for our good. And so this is a new chapter, a new season. It seems uncertain, but it is most definitely certain in the eyes of God. And not only is it certain, not only is he in control over it, but he's going to use this for his glory and for our good. He's doing a new thing. Do you not see it? Now, just I want to take a few moments as as we kind of close here to make this personal. Uh, The band's going to come back up. I um, mean, at leads us in a few songs, but I just want to kind of really dial this in for us here. Many of you have truly been in a difficult season. In fact, I know you have. I've talked to several of you. You've told me the difficult things you're going through. With the uncertainty of school and of jobs and relationships, there's been this anxiety that's birthed in some of you. There's been a, a loneliness a depression that you're battling because of the loneliness because of the craziness there's been fear of, of what if someone I know gets sick there's a fear of, of what if I can't get a job there's a fear if I can't do this whole online learning thing there's so much fear in your heart that you're battling there there's just disappointment and you know you thought you could have do the normal thing and have a normal college experience because That's just what happens, but that's been stripped from you. There's been so many things you've had to miss out on, and so there's disappointment there. There's so much pain that some of you are going through where you've lost relationships, you've lost loved ones, and you're dealing with so many things that are painful. And then some of you who are going through these things, you don't have a real relationship with Jesus. Just being frank here, there are some of you here who don't have a real relationship with Jesus, you are still bound by your sin, you are still in exile, you are still in Egypt. And you are feeling the weight of your guilt, the weight of your shame, you feel unworthy. But hear me say this, yes, you are a sinner, yes, you are a sinner, yes, you are sinful, yes, you are broken, but you are precious. And God loves you deeply, so much so that he sent his son to die for you. God is doing a new thing. And for some of you, the new thing in this season is making you a new creation. God has the tendency to use difficulty, to use difficult circumstances to get your attention. And so maybe for the first time in your entire life, God has your full attention. And with that attention, he wants to draw you to himself. He wants to create in you a new thing. If you would just confess that Jesus is Lord, you would trust him with your life, believe in who he is and what he did, then your former things, your past, your guilt, your shame, the things that are weighing you down, they can be put to death with the cross of Christ and you can step into the new thing that God has for you, the new creation, the new life, one with no guilt, no shame. And so for some of you, that's your step tonight. Others of you, you and probably many of you, you are believers. You are followers of Christ. But even in this season, you're disappointed. You're anxious. You're, You're fearful. You're lonely. You're sad, you're heartbroken, you're going through difficult things, some of you, though you are a follower of Christ, you have feared a way, and you have been unfaithful, just like we all have the tendency to do, and maybe that season's been short, maybe it's been a long time, and you are so ashamed of what you've done, and if you were to go back and ask yourself five years ago, would you do X, Y, and Z, you said, oh, absolutely not, but then here you are, and you feel the weight of your guilt and shame. You need to understand it was settled on the cross of Christ. Your guilt and your shame was settled on the cross of Christ. And what if, you as a believer, what if you were to stop looking at the size of the giants in Canaan and you were to instead look at the promises of your God? What if you were to stop longing for Egypt and you would step into the new thing that is Canaan? What if you were to stop listening to the enemy or the whispers of the enemy that heap shame upon shame on your life and instead you would rest in the grace and the mercy and the love of your God who has called you from the depths of hell and has called you by name? What if you were to take your eyes off of your little world and you would raise them to see? You and you have prayed to God and said, "God, Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." What if you would stop looking at all the things that you've missed out on in this season and in your life, and instead you would look at all God is wanting to do in and through you? What if you didn't have a mentality that these years of your life and this college experience was all about you, and instead you had the mentality that going to leverage this season for the kingdom of God and for his glory. What if you stop focusing on the past and stop letting it dictate your life and instead you let hope the hope of Jesus the hope of, of him working in you the hope of the day that is to come will wipe away all the tears the hope of the day when he we makes all things new, What if you allowed that hope to saturate every aspect of your life? What if you did that? God is on the move. He is doing a new thing.